And we're at a moment where sort of all, all contradictions are hate, right? The byproduct of the crisis of contemporary capitalism we find ourselves in this week in class politics. Classic fucking boomer. Hold you left. Maintaining the relations of neoliberalism. No! Capital. No! Capital. No! Capital. No! 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 I do the international, but we're from cameras. Okay, you're on Dole Capital and you're with Ben. We're broadcasting from the main streets of Canberra, Australia, adding our unasked for socialist insights and solidarity with working people and the poor fighting capitalism from Dunlop to Dusseldorf. On today's show, education is one of those areas that a lot of people have an opinion on. There's a lot happening in schools and a big part of how problems in education can be dealt with, dealt with is by empowering those who actually work in education. All too often, we don't actually get to hear much of the views of educators and uh, the collective voice of workers in education through their respective unions. So we're very grateful to have a chat with Patrick Judge, who's the Secretary of the Australian Education Union's ACT branch, about organising for workplace power, campaigning for a new enterprise agreement, and much more. First, Patreon, this show wouldn't be possible without our patrons and supporters, you can show your solidarity at www.patreon.com forward slash dog capital, D-O-H-K-P-A-I-T-A-L. Please like and share and subscribe to our show and leave a review on your preferred podcast application. Thank you to our supporters who have helped us with our broadcast hosting fees and equipment. Your support helps motivate and resource us to make more content. Before we get going, we're recording on Ngunnawal land and pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging, whose sovereignty was never ceded and who we express our solidarity with struggles to ending continuing injustices for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Patrick is the elected secretary of the ACT branch of the Australian Education Union, a long-time trade unionist and supporter of all things that are good that empower working people. Welcome to the show, show, Jack Patrick. G'day, thanks for having me. yeah, no, thank you for coming on. Good. Look, yeah. look, education is, is, look, it's a big area and it has, there are lots of problems, um, which, you know, we, we can barely, uh, you, could, you could probably do a podcast of hours talking about all the issues tied to education. But um, we, we really wanted to sort of, yeah, have a good yarn about where things are at in terms of like the more, I think the more crucial democratic thing that we're interested in as, as, um, as lefties on this show is about empowering people themselves in their workplaces to actually be able to fix the problems themselves. And I know that you've, you've obviously been at a big role recently. You're, you've, there's been an enterprise bargaining campaign in the ACT that's been kicking off. It's part of the little ritual we have in the ACT every couple of years, all the ACT public sector unions mm. have bargaining going on, but the education one's always a big one and always very interesting. And wanted to get an idea of how that's gone, uh, what's been different this time around, how do you think it's been uh, received by by members in in the education sector, and um, you know, what's what's the vibes for you, Patrick? You feeling confident? Yeah, look, things are progressing well with the enterprise bargaining. It's it's a really tough one this time around. Um, we're bargaining with the backdrop of of probably the the biggest crisis our sector has seen at least in some decades in terms of the the national teacher shortage, and um, that means that there's a lot of expectation on that bargaining process about what it can deliver, uh, and rightly so. Uh, people should be expecting through bargaining that uh, our union is going to achieve good things for them, uh, and they should be expecting that the ACT government is going to do uh, the right thing by them as well. Uh, but it's it's particularly um, difficult in the context that uh, it's not just uh, pay, it's also conditions uh, that are putting those pressures on uh, teachers. Uh, and in terms of the pay circumstances as well, we've got inflationary pressures that we haven't seen in the economy for some time. So, um, you know, we started out our enterprise bargaining campaign with some very ambitious pay claims, uh, but with the backdrop of, you know, 7.8% CPI increases, uh, they they suddenly start to look like you're just treading water. So it, it's been a particularly challenging backdrop and, you know, uh, but it has been going well. We have been having uh, some really constructive discussions uh, with the ACT government. So uh, we're hopeful of a good outcome. 
I mean, I guess in terms of the cost of living crisis and it being felt across the community in ACT, it's, it's an international, uh, well, you know, human-made phenomenon, if you like. Um, it's positive to hear that things have um, progressed with negotiations, but, I mean, I guess it would have been a little bit freaky going in with, like, uh, what do you mean inflation's running at 9% or 11% when you um, you initially, your, your ambit claim, your, your, your claim might have been, you might have been thinking, oh, you know, five's pretty good. <laughs> it could be right, like... How's, how's it panned out since then? Like, I mean, there's been, all of a sudden there's actually been, at least with some state and territory jurisdictions, a recognition that like, hold, like this is not what we've seen before for a very long time and how are we actually going to deal with that? Do you, do you think the government has actually been, I'm talking about the ACT uh, education, mm. do you think they've actually been pretty decent about not just sticking with the hardball thing of like, oh, no, we just can't afford it sort of type stuff? Or has it actually been like, actually, we're going to have to, you know, move the boundaries of what, what used to be pretty much a stand-up fight. You know, the AU would have a one-day strike and then, you know, we'd sit down and cut the deal. That was it. Like, that was pretty much, I, I remember sort of seeing that over the years, but it's, it's very different at the moment. Um, how's that How's that sort of the to and fro with that? Is that um, gone? Yeah, look, it's it's uh, been a different one from the perspective that we went in uh, to bargaining proper uh, this time around with some acknowledgement from the government that setting those cost of living pressures aside, we had a crisis to deal with in terms of, of getting people into the classroom and pay uh, and conditions were going to be a big part of that. So um, that set some expectations for, for our members, Um for teachers and, and others about what the ACT government's position would be. Uh, I think it would be very generous to call their initial pay offer um, a good one. Uh, it, it was it was certainly not what we were looking for, but um, it's come over time uh, to represent what we would say essentially the bargaining policy of the ACT government. And there are some things that we like about it and there are other things that we don't. So the ACT government would say they don't have a wages policy like uh, other jurisdictions do. Uh, that's partially true. Um, they they have provided uh, what they believe, I think, up front is their best offer yep. uh, and then they're working around the details of that. It prioritises pay increases for low-paid workers, very low-paid workers, and I think those are essential. Um, we've seen the ACTU in the last week come out and, and make exactly that point. Uh, so getting those in is, is really good, but teachers by and large are not low-paid workers. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not, uh, you know, uh, rolling in big piles of cash or diving into vaults of money like Scrooge McDuck, but uh, they are um, they're paid a professional wage uh, for the job that they do. Uh, and so that that initial pay offer from the government didn't do it for us. Um, we made it very clear that we were unhappy and would contemplate industrial action and they came back to us with an improved offer uh, earlier this year. In terms of what's in that offer, it's exceptional uh, in some parts um, and it is... Uh, I'll say ordinary in others, but what it definitely does show is that the ACT government acknowledges that there are cost of living pressures and there are teacher shortage issues. So uh, what they've effectively done in for classroom teachers, uh, those people who were still in the classroom uh, teaching, is is proposed a pay increase that works out to somewhere between 125 and 26% over three years. And so uh, most of the classifications that we have for classroom teachers are getting uh, 19, 19.5% or more mm-hmm. uh, over a three-year deal. Um, it, it, by anyone's, uh, you know, uh, standards, that's a, that's a pretty damn good pay offer. Um, it's much less generous the higher up you go. Uh, and they, they put to us that there are some reasons to that, um, including the stage three tax cuts, which are a disgusting, regressive uh, measure um, that we should all oppose. Yep. Um, but, you know, acknowledging that they will deliver to people who are high income earners, essentially a real terms uh, pay increase uh, in some cases, it, it, you know, it's reasonable for that to affect the government's thinking about what's equitable. Um, so we're continuing to have those discussions. Um, now we rejected that offer 
as well, just on the basis that it wasn't good enough, uh, particularly for school leaders, your faculty heads and your principals who have been so instrumental, particularly during COVID, in delivering outcomes for the community and, and you know, deserve to have that work recognised. Yeah, that's right. It's been, look, I've, I've witnessed this and experienced it in a, in a former life in terms of the ACT government using a... Um, uh, an interesting little deal that they, they do with uh, a, some, a, one sector of the ACT government and basically, oh, we need to look after the lowest paid and then then thinking you can just, you know, um, sticky tape that onto on every other sort of bit of the public of the public sector. So the mm-hmm. classic one would be, you know, literally teachers and particularly teachers who have professional qualifications, gone and gotten additional um, postgraduate qualifications for that. It should be well well remunerated what they do, not to mention the hours and, and all the other things that they're responsible for doing, um, but finding themselves looking at like, you know, a, a barely a salary maintenance wage rise um, going on. Um, sort of, you know, I don't know, carrying it for the fact that the, uh, you'd call, I don't know, it's not necessarily even classification creep, but that the um, some classifications, some um, professions or jobs in the ACT government don't pay very well. And there's been moves in the last two agreements to sort of address that. And it's great, but it doesn't really um, cut the muzzle. Obviously, I have sort of, you know, just more, more background there for our listeners as to how that's gone. But you're right. There's no, um, they like to claim there's no one single bargaining policy, but there really is. They go and, you know, let's go and, Let's try this on the nurses. Let's try this on the teachers, and let's try and go and try it on the white collar workers. And, all, and it just doesn't necessarily work very well. So um, it's interesting to hear you say that uh, members stuck with that and, and turned around and said, "Look, that's that's not good enough." On the paper, a lot of people are going, "Oh, that's, that sounds amazing. That sounds really incredible." But that really does sort of, I don't know, for me, sort of indicate something going on with it with the membership there, um, saying, "Well, you know, everyone should deserve something um, fair and not go, you know, not just go behind or just have salary maintenance for the next." Was it a three-year agreement or four? Three years. Yeah, look, it's really pleasing to see that people have stuck together like that. And, you know, um, Angela, our president, and I, we've been at at pains throughout this process through claims development and then through the the process of responding and and bargaining to really value and prioritise the voices of our members to let them you know, to present them with the information, mm-hmm. to give them the guidance we can, but to let them make the the decisions, and we've placed our trust in them to to make the right calls. Um, and certainly, I think on this one that they they did so. Um, we're now expecting that we'll we'll get something a little bit better back uh, from the ACT government in the the coming weeks for those members who weren't getting such a good deal and. Uh, you know, it's it's to their credit as a, a group of workers that they've shown that solidarity, um, and they've they've shown it not as a matter of the union leadership saying, "Hey, we've got to go in and stick up for the management class" or something like that. That they, they've just immediately, you know, had, had democratic uh, processes uh, that elect people to our representative bodies have have paid dividends. That they've made the right call. Um, yeah. And I guess that's that's the thing about the AU. I know, and the ATT has always had a really quite a strong uh, rank and file structure. Like everything from, you know, um, I've always admired this in the education sector. The the rank and file structure organised around schools. That you have sub branches in schools, and then you'll have a network, and then you'll have your your branch. You know, you have your branch council that meets every quarter. Things like mm-hmm. there, there's sort of things that are quite like don't. There are other unions that don't have anything like that. They'll, they'll be barely lucky if they've got a workplace committee in, in, a, in an office somewhere or, or, or the like. So I, I guess I, I, to me, it's sort of like it provides an example of how professional white collar workers can actually, you know, who are, yeah, they're dealing with clients and they are doing the serious stuff, can actually collectively have some, you know, organisational um, power built on, on their workplace situation. And I know you mentioned to me offline, we're talking about the your bargaining team uh, was, was elected by the, the membership. It wasn't just a, you know a bunch of specialists sort of sent off to go and do the chats and just report back. And then, you know, how's that going this time around? It sounds it sounds a bit different than than the past. Yeah. So our branch council, which is uh, an elected rep from each of our schools, sometimes more than one, they're sort of on a, a per capita basis elected. Um, they they govern the way our union works and the decisions that we make. Um, 
we put to to them uh, shortly after I was elected as as secretary and um, right at the start of this process that we needed to have uh, real people at the bargaining table, not just union officials, um, but people who are actually working in schools who have that immediate experience to share uh, because that, I think, in my experience within the AEU, and I'm, I've been around here for um, for about seven years, is uh, this isn't necessarily something that we do well, that we treat enterprise bargaining as this sort of professional pursuit for industrial relations wonks, which, you know, I'm certainly one of them, and yeah. um, I, I'm not necessarily the best person to speak to these things. So we elected bargaining committee of four uh, representatives to go and um work alongside me and uh, a couple of others uh, from the branch office on the, the bargaining team. And I, I think, that, to be honest, that's had mixed success. It's yep. the first time we've done it and we've really struggled to know how best to uh, bring out their experience in discussions. But um, it's certainly... Uh, it keeps everyone in the room honest as well that, you know, no, no one can turn up and think that it's okay, you know, on the employer's side of the table to to bag teachers or, or whatever because um, there's some of them right there in the room. Yep. And, uh, and we can't talk rubbish about what's going on in schools because there are people right there who work in schools to pull us up on it. So, um, you know, there have been times where they have – chimed in and, and saved us from making well-intended uh, intentioned mistakes where uh, we thought we knew uh, what the solution to something was and those bargaining reps have been able to chime in and say, uh, well, no, you know, that's not how things are working in, in my school at the moment or that wouldn't work for us for these reasons. It's really interesting and powerful example for, for me because I have seen this and it's something that should happen more often in unions where uh, rank and file representatives are actually—they're um, not just taking a back seat; they're actually in part of the driving seat of discussions about what affects them. And they're also, so on one hand, accountable. It keeps um, your union officials—you know—you start your full time as accountable, but it also means it actually strengthens. Uh, it can really strengthen and give you the the elected officials a lot more stronger knowledge and gravitas from the membership. You know that um, you know that you guys are you know. That the union office is serious about what it's saying, that it is representing the the views of its members. And that wedge thing that you do find was always a classic from employers like, well, you know, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, it's okay, it doesn't affect you, it's just your members, you know, like <laughs> that, that stuff. So you, you get to avoid that um, that sort of game there. But, yeah, I, I think like, that's great, uh, Patrick. I'm, I'm glad that that's um, it's a good, good little story there and, and something... Um, encourage uh, other unions and uh, union members to you know pursue and their, their activities with the with the enterprise bargaining the other bit i know look the pays bit of it and we've i know look the guardian today published an interesting broad article uh, i don't know if you saw that one talking about discipline in schools we don't want to get onto that right now but they were talking about a, a shortage of over four four and a half thousand um teachers uh nationally and things are getting pretty bad with that. So I guess what pay is part of that that can be dealt with in enterprise bargaining. What's the other thing in enterprise bargaining that, that you think should be pursued or that members have tried to pursue in terms of like flexibility and work, workload? Because I know workload shocking. We got a lot of uh, educators leaving the, the sector just because of the workload, because of the mandatory re reporting. Um, there are people who find themselves in social work roles, providing, you know, like mm -hmm. so, you know, psychology counselling services for, for parents and doing doing a whole lot of stuff because there's just not the support mechanisms there. What what things there can, you know, have you guys had a go at trying to sort of like how, how could we use the EBA as a way to addressing some of these things that actually might, some people would say, oh, well, there's a broader issue around funding. Yeah, look, I think that's a, a really important point to pick up uh, from the perspective of uh, the real workload issues facing teachers. Firstly, they're not new. Um, we've been talking about exactly the same issues in, in schools for the last 20 years and they've just become increasingly acute. Uh, the ACT branch of the AEU published a paper way back in 2001 and it could have been written yesterday, um, you know, and it made a series of recommendations about what we could do in bargaining and there were things like, you know, school-based workload committees. There were things like... Um, 
uh, you know, uh, workload impact analysis tools for new government programs, and that they they were all tried. And you know, I think it's it's reasonable to say at this stage that they didn't work. Um, that they sounded like they should work, but they didn't work. So the challenge this time around for us was to identify some realistic solutions. Mm-hmm. Um, but also to do that in in the context of our number one biggest workload problem is that we don't have enough teachers. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, and in, in terms of, um, uh, you know, what, what that means in practice, uh, you can look to just really simple things like inclusion support in schools that uh, where schools need a bit of expert assistance with uh, helping a kid uh, adjust to school or uh, working with students with particular disabilities. Maybe a a teacher needs someone to work shoulder to shoulder with them for a few weeks until they get the hang of of working with a particular student or group of students. Um, Not so long ago, the ACT uh, Education Directorate had a a great resource, these network student engagement team inclusion support officers. And um, those people have all uh, had to go back to working sort of regular uh, classroom teacher or, or school leader jobs in schools, roles in schools, uh, just because we're struggling to staff the classes. So it's these these little things that then sort of snowball, you know, because those teachers who, you know, were struggling and receiving assistance previously now can't get it. Um, their workload is increased. Uh, the only way to get them that, you know, so, some additional training is to take them off class and send them to a, a course or whatever the case may be, that shoulder-to-shoulder support's not there. So um, these issues just compound and compound. Um, They get down to this level of what is it that we're expecting schools to do? And, you you know, you mentioned the issues around schools being expected to uh, essentially provide, you know, social work, housing services. Um, You know, yeah, there's all of that. But we've also increased the workload on schools over the last decade, and and I should say rightly so, in terms of being more inclusive. And, you know, all teachers are now expected to work with students with disabilities and to develop skills there, and they should be. Uh, But the challenge, of course, is resourcing that properly, getting the right people in place and enough of the right people, uh, finding safe ways to work. Uh, It all becomes very uh, complicated when you don't have enough staff. So um, the, the measures that we're really looking to in this agreement go to continuous union engagement and employer engagement with workloads. So we're talking about things like uh, sustainable workloads um, management uh, committee that's not uh, just a management side uh, exercise in you know management determining what workload issues there are and it's not uh, school-based so it's not saying to schools, work it out for yourselves. Um, it, it's a genuine process within the consultation provisions and forcible provisions of our enterprise agreement um, to work over the life of, of the agreement to reduce workloads in schools. And we're going to have to have some really tough conversations about what schools can and should do uh, and what things we're going to, to cut, what are the nice-to-haves and uh, what are the must-dos. I've seen... There's been similar in the past. There were mechanisms like that that seemed that I remember the criticism was it was like you said it was the school the the, the local school you were held captive to what the environment was like with your local um, school leader uh, rather than actually like the you could have the, the immediate problems with the school but you then you actually actually had the, had the the issues with the directorate in terms of might be funding or yeah the the power you know not enough <laughs> workplace power there for the the, the workers to actually you know, takes up control over how we're going to come up with a solution. But, I mean, that sounds really, really useful. It also, I mean, to me, is that, is that also heading things off in terms of the works? I mean, it's said to me in the past, like the, you'll have work health and safety issues that will come up in a, in a, in a school environment and people just, you know, they're filling in their, you know, the mandatory reporting thing, oh, yes, I, you know, this happened. And then not, not, nothing, get, nothing getting resolved members would, would have. Like, is this another way to sort of, you know, we're dealing with work health and safety can be part of that, but we're actually dealing with it as a broader issue about, you know, workloads can actually lead, head things off before you get something really critical that happens to someone. 
Yeah, work safety, it's um, it's a really vexed issue. The ACT has been a bit of a, a nation leader in terms of uh, the safety in, in schools, um, particularly in terms of getting out uh, early comparatively to, to other jurisdictions and um, really emphasising that work health and safety laws actually apply to the classroom. And I think this was something that um, it really, my, my time in the AEU office started um, with a big campaign around workplace violence and uh, that's continued to be an issue for us. But um, the, the systems that we had in place had developed and sort of circa 2018, 2019 were starting to work quite well no longer work. Um, the reasons for that essentially relate to not having the staff and then a couple of years of COVID and, and remote learning disruption um, really impacting, you know, both uh, students in terms of their, uh, you know, attitudes towards school, their ability to regulate behaviours and, and those sorts of things and their, their experience participating in classroom environments. It's been tough on, on kids. Um, but it's also masked some of those understaffing uh, issues and the things that would flow on from them. Obviously, you, you can't really assault someone through a, uh, a computer screen, but um, you certainly can do it when they're there with you in the classroom. So uh, we do have this really vexed uh, issue at the moment. And I think if we're honest, um, you know, our union is struggling to come to terms with you know, what is the best thing we can do. Obviously, violent behaviour is unacceptable, but um, we have a suite of, of absolutely world-class policies and procedures based on an assumption that we have excess resources that we can direct to schools when they need them, but we don't have that uh, anymore. Uh, so uh, absent that, uh, what do we do? Well, it probably looks like being a bit less inclusive and that's not palatable to, to us um, as a profession and it's not what anybody wants to see, um, but... Uh, you know, absent those sort of really expert professional approaches where you're understanding the needs of the student and working intensively with them, it really reduces your work safety toolkit in a, a yeah. school setting. And so like what you, I mean, I guess what we're sort of getting into is, is going from what, what can be achieved in an enterprise bargaining framework, you know, in terms of setting up that, that ability for workers to, to um, have some control over the conversation and some of the decision-making about, um, you know, workload. And then we've got, like you've, you've emphasised a number of times, I think it's very clear, um, pay is a, is a major issue uh, in terms of uh, attracting people to, to, to the profession. Um, but we're now getting into, into the area of like, look, you know, the ACT government might have wonderful policies on things, but if you don't have the resources, you've got issues. So, I mean, are we getting more into, I mean, I'm just sort of going to segue into the, the, the realm of funding, like, it's not just a it's not just a local jurisdiction problem, is it? It's also a federal problem. I know Jason Clare was out there um, today, sort of saying that Guardian articles he's leading to making some noises around more funding for for TAFE and um, so education. Mm. It, it has been a bit like what, what, what's you know scratching your head, waiting for something to happen. It doesn't seem to be much going on in this space from the, the federal parliamentary party. And we know we've, we've I mean I mentioned other stuff, but like. Um, funding seems to be, you know, the big elephant in the room. Yeah, I think there's a real disconnect between what schools are funded to achieve, uh, you know, particularly under those... The so the national school reform agreements that, that set school funding are set federally by agreement with the states and territories. The ACT is the only uh, place in the country where public school students are getting 100% of the minimum standard. Uh, and if you think about the national picture there, it, it is an absolute disgrace uh, that at every state or territory bar one, public schools are being deliberately underfunded. Uh, and and that, is the, that is exactly what's going on there. At the same time, private schools are being deliberately overfunded uh, in, in other jurisdictions and in the ACT. So um, that, that does not help our cause at all. But in terms of what that minimum uh, funding standard is actually there to help schools achieve, um, it's getting 80% of students to a, a NAPLAN minimum 
standard in literacy and numeracy over the course of three years or a three-year period. So between years three and five or five and seven, you know. Um, that's totally at odds with the community's expectation, particularly in the ACT, of what schools will achieve. If you told parents 20% of kids aren't going to reach the minimum standard over a three-year period, they would find that unacceptable. So um, in terms of what it is that we're talking about funding our schools to do, uh, it, it, it's not enough uh, to meet community expectations. And then the ACT has some absolutely outstanding aspirations for what schools will achieve articulated in the, the ACT Labor government's future of education uh, strategy. Um, it's absolutely on the money in terms of what we should be doing and directing us towards best practice. It's just a question of funding it. So um, th that may not be things that necessarily fit within the sort of federally agreed school funding. There might be other measures that you could look to, but, um, it, you know, if you are not funding those more inclusive models of schooling, if you're not funding schools to do the things that communities expect them to do, you place enormous workload pressures on teachers and, and particularly on school leaders. Like school principals are, are under immense pressure from their communities to deliver things that they're just not funded to do. Um, and that's really what, uh, at the end of the day, is uh, when we are having those more experienced staff driven out, and, and that is happening in some cases, it's that that's really getting to them. It's it's that the expectation on what they're going to be able to achieve is something that's going to require them to work sort of 50, 60 hour weeks, uh, and they're paid to work at a 37 hour week. Um, at the end of the day, uh, it's just it's just too much. And I'm sure there'd be white collar um, workers and comrades I know listening to this show could relate to that. Uh, working in the Australian Public Service where they've seen they might be very well paid on paper. You're going, oh, you know, you're on 110K or something like that. And, and But the reality of the hours that they're putting in, you've just gone effectively half your hourly rate, so to speak. And it just doesn't, yeah. it doesn't add up. Like someone should be, you know, yes, they might on paper getting paid really well, but no one should be working you know, 50 or 60 hours. I mean, it's, it's nuts. I'm, I'm, I'm well aware of you know, the anecdotes of, um, some incredibly hardworking, dedicated um, school leaders, and you know, um, who, yeah, it, literally, it's a vocation. But it's a vocation to the point that you know, um, yeah, they end up having to they they break and they have to take time off, and not good, not sustainable. So, I guess, yeah, like look what you're saying there, Patrick. The the funding is is definitely the other other um, part of that. Just with the look, the cycle of things like yeah, the AU ACT branch like looks like you know the EBA is going to wrap up like. Well, where, where to from here? Like, is, is the cycle in, in terms of the AU nationally, like, is is there a, a national conference coming up soon? Like, what's what's the, the, the vibe? Mm. I mean, obviously, in New South Wales, some states have had a really hard time. Um, there, I know there's some there's some hope for some things to change around funding. I know that the um, the ACT, for example, uh, Yvette Berry, who's the education um, minister here, she said, a number of times she's been quite happy to say she's not happy with NAPLAN, which is a mandatory testing thing for our listeners overseas mm. uh, in terms of how it's gone with funding. Um, you know, where do you think that space is going to in terms of, um, you know, demands on the, on the uh, federal ALP to, um, you know, get involved in this space? Yeah, look, the demand is the same thing that it's been since the uh, original uh, Gonski report. And, you know, Gonski's... Gonski's um, for for uh, to get away from just using someone's surname. It's it's a report that tells us about what the minimum funding standard should be, and you know, setting aside our selfish interests, just as the ACT for a minute, where we are fully funded, um, you know, something that would contribute greatly to the available pool of teachers, for example, is is funding our comrades in other states and territories uh, to a proper standard. And in terms of schools, that's where the AEU's focus is going to be, um, that we need the federal Labor government to actually fund public schools to the minimum standards, uh, not, to, not to some other yeah. standards, and not to promise that they'll get us to the minimum standard by, you know, 2050 or, or something like that, but, but to actually get on with it. Uh, we cannot sustain a situation where uh, we don't 
give enough funding to the schools that, frankly, are doing the heavy lifting uh, across the country in terms of educating young people. Um, in, in terms of the other sort of uh, priorities uh, for us nationally, though, uh, we've just come off the back of a very successful uh, TAFE campaign, and I think that the federal government does deserve some credit there, particularly around the fee-free TAFE uh, introduction. Um, that for us industrially, you know, politically, it's a big win. Um, TAFE's been really gutted by successive conservative governments, uh, and it's good to see some money being tipped back in. Um, but it also presents us with some industrial challenges in terms of getting that workforce back up and running, bringing people back in to run courses, you know, all, all of the the operational things. Um, yeah. yeah, I, I think it's, a, it's definitely it was a it's a good start. Uh, would be what some people would say. I mean, you know, mm. it's like yes, it's heartening, and, but it has been bad. Come off the back of nothing, and you know, for, for years the casualisation of the workforce, the contracting out. Uh, or even just, you know, the degrading of just funding, like just even quite happy. I know in New South Wales, they just seem quite happy to see TAFE campuses shut down and regional centres and the like. It's just sort of, you know, further education seen as, um, well, that's just something you, you, you're going to have to go and sort that out yourself, sorry. You know, you're going to send your kid elsewhere. Yeah, um, yeah that's that has been interesting to sort of see that one. Um, but, yeah, I, yeah, I'm, I'm not... I'm saying it's sounding hopeful, though, is the the thing that I'm I'm getting from you, and I know that's something we had Kelly Bowman on, who's a long time um, rattling um, cage rattler of, of <clears throat> renown in the region, doing things in uh, education in, in New South Wales and the ACT, and I know they're they're celebrating the win uh, with a change of government in New South Wales. You know, is it at a better space now, and is it really the time for? you know, educators to really sort of focus on, like, you know, yeah, really, really um, knuckle down on what we recognise is wrong and what needs to be fixed, not just go, okay, we've had a change of government, time to just, you know, not worry about it until there's, um, you know, there's another election. It really is a different space, isn't it? You've got to get on with it now to fix things. You've got crazy things of, you know, shortages and occupational violence going on. Like, it's not one of those, we're not in a normal situation, a normal cycle, yeah. so to speak, would be, oh, okay, they're in, we'll give them a go and you can't really do that. Well, we don't we don't have that problem in the ACT. Of course, we've got a, a long-standing Labor government, and and you know generally it's my experience that they're good people who are trying to do the the right thing. Uh, but um, we can't stop talking about our issues just because we're you know more or more or less satisfied with the the government of the day. And um, you know the AEU is independent of of the the Labor Party, so we'll always prosecute our issues regardless of, of who is in government. Um, but uh, you're absolutely right. New South Wales in particular, and, you know, uh, Kelly would have um, covered this this off to some extent, but um, we started our enterprise bargaining campaign around the same time as they started asking for very similar things in terms of, of salaries and, and conditions and um what uh, where, where we have uh, eventually been able to achieve uh, at least some degree of success there and um, uh, uh, you know hopeful of a really good outcome uh, they reached a position where uh, following a really outstanding uh, campaign the more than thanks campaign and, and repeated industrial action they had no alternative but to seek a change of government um, they were not going to get from the Perite government uh, what was needed for public education. So uh, I think they're really to be commended on achieving that result. Uh, but, you know, as you're suggesting as well, the hard work starts now. Uh, it's one thing to, to get that change of government. Now they need to convince them to do the right thing. And, you know, if the New South Wales state government thinks making positive noises about more than 3.5% is going to do it, um, they only need to, to engage with the really good research coming out of New South Wales and coming out of the Teachers' Federation and the Centre for Public Education Research and, and others uh, that we need sort of minimum pay rises of five or more percent um, to to be really resetting the profession to the levels it needs to be in. So yeah. uh, there's work to do uh, and we always have to do it. And I think that's regardless of whether you're a teacher union or, or any other union, you've got to always yeah. be applying that now, pressure. Patrick, you're going to flip it around to something in terms of workload and, and workplace practices. Uh, the ACT government, well, not the government, the Assembly, the ACT Assembly's uh, 
there's a committee that looks at uh, at work. So there, the, there's a committee inquiry. It's got a long name. I won't talk about the name of the committee, but that, that they've had a uh, the committee has, and we've had Susan Orr on a, a number of times, um, Labor MLA, who sits on this committee. But they, they've been conducting an inquiry into the future of work, um, uh, basically a, a four day week. Um, we we rather enjoyed the AU submissions to that, uh, along with the Nurses Federation ones, actually saying like, "Hey, you know, it's not a bad idea, and not just a bad idea. There is actually ways you could you could actually do this um, if you're serious about it." Like, um, have you got any thoughts on um, anything you'd like, like why this would be why this would actually be a good thing in schools? Like, some people sort of think, "Oh no, no, you've got to have a teacher there five days a week, and and that's it." Like. Yeah, is yeah maybe for our listeners like why, why would why would a four-day week working work in the education yeah. sector yeah well look let, let's start at the start a four-day week is is generally a good idea and it's the sort of thing that unions should be fighting for and fighting hard for we've got a a proud history of achieving the current structure of the working week you know 40 hours five days two days for the weekend it didn't happen by accident um there has to be something next and i think um we should place that expectation on ourselves as a movement that we're going to be going after these things in terms of schools uh it's it, it also might sound a little bit bizarre in the context of saying we can't get enough people to come and staff our schools to be saying it's a good idea to have a, a look at a four-day week um, and this might take us into some real sort of education policy wonk land uh, territories so apologies if i do that a little bit but um it, the, the Australian schools or Australian kids actually spend a lot of time in school comparatively, um, significantly more time than jurisdictions, uh, other countries that, uh, you know, on, on international testing achieve far greater success than we do. And uh, you have to question then, you know, are, are we doing the right things with the time we have? you know, is it necessary to be spending all that time in the classroom or is there a, a, an argument to be made for quality time in the classroom? So our starting point was, uh, you know, really working conditions that we'd like to see our members share in initiatives like a four-day week and they shouldn't be excluded from that. Uh, but then it was to look at the educational outcomes. So, you know, even if kids are still spending five days a week at, at, at school a week, which we think that they probably have to um and just in terms of supporting you know others in our community who aren't going to always be working on the same four days we know that we're we're going to have those issues around precarious work and shift work um but uh looking at the way school days are structured at what it is that we're actually doing with the days and looking at what schools are being asked to do so schools have become sort of community hubs and they deliver these sort of uh, mental health services, other health services, uh, community outreach services, there's youth workers and social workers and psychologists engaged directly in schools. But um, all too often they're pulling kids out of class to provide them with the services that they need to access. So um, a combination of sort of e e directly educational and education supporting uh, work during the school day uh, could really pay dividends, particularly in terms of just making our system more equitable. Um, so uh, we came at this, uh, I guess, problem, how would you make, make a four-day week work in schools uh, from the perspective that, or firstly, maybe we don't actually need to do so much teaching. We're torturing the poor bloody kids by, uh, by locking them up in a classroom all day and we don't need to do it. Uh, but secondly, we might gain things by not locking them up in a classroom for so much time and not trying to cram so much in. Uh, we're placing them under a lot of pressure. Uh, so um, really having, a, I guess, that broader look at uh, what is school and what are we trying to achieve helps us then look at a four-day week and say this is something that we could do um, and it has the benefit of less stress for teachers and uh and uh, ideally, less stress for everyone across the community when yeah, they're working a four-day week. Feed in really well to this idea because I think that initially, when some people haven't thought about it much, they they often think of uh, white collar workers in an office in an office space. Think, oh yeah, we'll work for them, but won't work for anyone. It's like, well, 
you, if you need, you're going to have something like a four day week to work. It needs to work for everyone. And and like what you were touching on earlier, the the labor movements campaign for you know a forty hour forty hour week back in the day, then you know then getting a thirty five hour week and the like. Like it, it took a long time when we got that, but uh, work has changed. Uh, the, the the way in which we use technology has changed. Uh, some of the ways in which we're we're, we're organising is is not necessarily even healthy for for people. Uh, the way the work patterns have been working. So, yeah, that's um, yeah. I, I rather enjoyed the um, the intervention there. I'll post in the notes the the uh, the, the inquiry uh, again. We like we've been plugging that one away, and we're going to talk more about the the four day week on this show uh, in coming months because we want to get it up. But um, yeah, no, that's um, that's been really um, really interesting to sort of get that perspective because I, I don't think a lot of I mean, I think people just think, oh, maybe it's like having a part-time arrangement. But I think the thing is, you've you got to have everyone on the, mm. uh, as many people as possible covered by the arrangement to, to make it work. And it can't just be a public sector thing. It's got to be, you know, out there across the, the various workforces and the like. Um, yeah, we should all share in the, the victories of the labour movement. Um, yeah. It shouldn't be for a select few. It's the, That's yeah. the whole principle of the thing, isn't it? No, it's... Um, Absolutely spot on. And I'm just thinking uh, in terms of um, the other thing about more time for people, um, the other other aspect that's talked about, like if people actually have an additional day that they've got time to play, it also means they've got time for more time with their, their children, um, which would probably be a very good thing uh, in terms of um if people can actually have you know yeah. more, uh, healthier uh, interactions with their with their children, the 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 spin off benefits are you know quite obvious uh, in terms of when you think about that. Um, also, I mean, we know anecdotally with COVID, there was a lot of you know a lot of yeah. people, you know cheering on the teachers and, and people actually understanding the workload, getting an idea of like what it takes to actually prepare classes and stuff like that. Like you know, great appreciation. But, um, really, like some. Some more time for everyone would probably mean that we could all actually have a, a nicer, nicer life. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Look, and the hardest stories that our members have to tell, that the ones that you know really kick you in the guts when you hear them, are stories uh, about yeah. about really work. Um, there'll be stories about you know single mothers in particular who are trying so hard to do things for their kids, but. Um, you know, they are shift workers or they are minimum wage workers. They're working multiple jobs to try to make ends meet and they're struggling to provide secure housing and, and food for their kids um, on the wage that they're earning. And at the same time, if, if their kid needs a bit more support around school, they're just not available to do it. And so we hear absolutely, you know, heart-wrenching stories about um, good people who are trying really, really hard to be there for their kids, and it's work that's making it impossible. And it, it's it's our lack of value that we place on, you know, particular jobs that people in our community do. And so, you know, if you're thinking about how you can help a, a, a teacher um, with their work and, and schools with their work, well, well, part of it is supporting pay rises for low paid workers and supporting secure work, uh, because the, the lack of of those things is is really making our work much more difficult uh, in schools. Fantastic. And I think, yeah, just to sort of, you know, um, uh, get, getting towards the end, Patrick, I mean, guess what? You're, you're reiterating the point that, like, it doesn't matter what sector people are in, like actually having a strong union, whether you you might, we get people who think of themselves as, oh, yes, no, I'm middle class, I went to university. Um, that's terribly nice, but the fact is if, you want your work to be respected and actually have decent pay and conditions and be listened to and work. Like being a union is a, a really important part of that. Like um, that's something I always take from talking to teachers about, uh, particularly also how passionate they are about being union members and the like. They just get it. It's not just about a professional indemnity. They get it in terms of like, you know, this is, uh, you know, it, it affects what kind of, you know, um, having some power over their, uh, the, the thing that they've chosen that they love doing, but also having you know trying to be have, have as much power outside of work about what they've got. But yeah, what do you what do you think there? Like, I think it's uh, really the case that people can feel a bit voiceless 
in their workplace and you know I've been in that situation myself I didn't start out as a teacher I started out as a uh, total scumbag lawyer in the private sector and um, that was a really crap workplace uh, to be honest uh, that I, I started out in from a lot of perspectives the pay was bad and the hours were long and um, people really flogged themselves to try to get things done uh, and to try to, to get through that experience and they weren't supported by a strong union. I was a union member and, you know, so far as I was aware, and I think this is a, a, an experience lots of people would have, I was the only one um, that, you know, in, in amongst the graduate lawyers who I started out with uh, who thought it was important to join their union. And then I had such an opposite experience becoming a teacher a few years later that, you know, my first day uh, working in a... Um, Working in an ACT public school, there was a union meeting and uh, they they uh, elected positions. Uh, and I remember they elected our representatives to branch council and I thought a bunch of people getting together and talking about what they're going to do for their workforce and their profession sound, you know, even though it's on the weekend, mm. uh, it sounds like the best thing uh, I could possibly imagine. Uh, maybe I'm a, a big nerd, but I thought this this sounds fantastic and so I stuck my hand up to go and do that and I was right it was fantastic it's uh it's a real credit to um teachers that they are members of their union and that they take this so seriously and um you know really engage and participate yeah, in these sorts and of processes of workers from other sectors can, can take something from what you're saying there Patrick like being involved and engaged and taking some power back in your workplaces for, for no matter what type of work you got, um, it's it's about having you know power over your life. So that's um, you know definitely a, a takeaway there. Look, is there anything else you'd like to add at all? Oh, look, it's been an absolute pleasure having a chat about education and and what's going on. And um, you know, hopefully, um, in the next little while, we'll be looking at a really uh, good, improved set of terms and conditions for for teachers in ACT public schools. And uh, my job will pivot to advocating for uh, even better things. Um, but no, uh, look, yeah, it's been great. Thanks, uh, Patrick. And look, all, all the best to members of the AEU uh, in Canberra and beyond. And thanks so much for joining us on Dole Capital. It's um, really good to hear some positive stories about in education because we know that there are a lot of, I mean, uh, people can look up our last previous show, Talking to Kelly, about problems in New South Wales. There are some very serious issues uh, in education and uh, there's some also mm. some hope to, to actually, you know, have a go and, and try to get make improve things and make them better everywhere. So thanks for joining us, Patrick, and thanks for listening to Dole Capital and also a big shout-out to our patrons and supporters. Yeah, we'll be back again this month with some more. A lot of, lot of episodes coming this month, so all good. So we'll speak to you soon. Cheers. <laughs>